Hey, everybody. Uh, Dr. Rick Wallace here dropping in on you. Hope everybody is off to a great start. Uh, <clears throat> no matter what it is uh, you have on the plate, no matter what it is you're trying to do, uh, no matter how difficult it was uh, last week, if you're still breathing, you're still in the fight. You know, uh, that's my mantra. If you're still breathing, you're still in the fight. I don't care how bad it is. Life is in motion consistently. Life is not stagnant. No matter where you're at, static. It can be stagnant, but it's not static, meaning that it doesn't move and it stands still. It's moving. You just have to make sure that you start to influence the movement. So no matter what you're going through, no matter where you're at, uh, know that there's something that you can do to change your situation. You're never, ever trapped anywhere. You just got to be willing to put in the work. You got to plan your escape. You got to plan your future. So I start out with that uh, often, uh, more often than not, no matter what I'm going to talk about, I want to encourage people to understand that no matter where you're at as an individual, as a family, or as a community, you're not stuck there. You got to put in some work. It's not going to be easy. I think a lot of us are looking for a path of ease to get to where we want to go. And we become frustrated and we become frenetic and unglued. We become disappointed and we tend to settle in and just accept where we're at because uh, what we wanted didn't come easy. It, it, it's not going to come easy. It's going to take some work. So I'm going to start with that. Second of all, uh, this is uh, the next installment in our Black Wealth uh, series. Uh, the Black Wealth series is in uh, direct correlation with my 25th book uh, that I'm writing on uh, the entire Black Wealth experience, the entire experience of Blacks in the U.S. since 1865 and our desire to build wealth and what we faced, uh, the challenges, the setbacks, the disappointments, uh, the illusions, the myths, and so much more. And uh, I am excited about it for a couple of reasons. Number one is I think that the conversation of black wealth needs to be expanded. Um, and for a long time, I have stayed away from doing any intensive uh, focus on black wealth because I believe that we had people in certain lanes that were doing a great job. Dr. Uh, Claude Anderson, Dr. Fred Price, um, uh, and uh, as of recent, over the last decade, for sure, uh, Dr. Boyce Watkins. Uh, each of them have their own experience in their own lane and their own area of expertise. And while my life has tra uh, traversed across all those spectrums, I felt like they were doing an unbelievable job and I didn't really want to uh, muddy the waters. But I believe that there is a, a need for a comprehensive understanding of black wealth uh, and not only what it takes to build black wealth, but also what we have over the course of the last 150 plus years endured and in, when it, in, and in many ways uh, been gaslighted into, into believing it's all us. Uh, there's a, enough culpability to go around no matter what. And so the black wealth series is basically following along the outlines of the book that I'm writing. Um, and it's giving you some insight historically into the uh, in, into the experience of Blacks as we have 
attempted to traverse uh, and navigate through uh, the economic forces, political forces, social forces, academic and educational forces, and to find our own space uh, in these places. Uh, I believe that if there's enough culpability to go around, I think that there's a responsibility for us to own some of the things that uh, we have practiced that has uh, contributed to our lack of forward mobility in the area of building wealth. But I think we also have to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that there were some major uh, policies and practices and codes and other things that were in place. Uh, so far, we've talked about black codes. We've talked about convict leasing. We've talked about uh, Jim Crow segregation. We've talked about redlining. We've talked about uh, miseducation. And we talked about all of these things because they actually have played a role in our inability to close the wealth gap. And we need to understand that. Now, please understand that we are not discussing these things and I'm not writing about these things for the sake of creating excuses for us to whine and complain about. I'm not big on whining. I'm not big on complaining. I am big on at identifying problems and coming up with solutions. So when I present these problems, I've already been thinking about and studying and in my own way, looking at ways that we can overcome them. And I'm inviting other great minds and other free thinkers to come in and say, hey, look, this is what I think we should do. And I think that's where the conversation has to go. The conversation has to go from look what they've done to look what we're going to do. And that's what this is about. Uh, my, my great grandfather, who was my adopted father, always demanded that when I came to him with a problem that I had already started working on the solution. So I never came to him whining or complaining. Look what happened. I came and said, look, this is going on. This is what I'm trying to do. What do you think? And then he gets involved in it. And of course, we get to the solution. But it was it, it set in me. Uh, a mindset that there's no problem for which there's no solution. If you are connected to God in whatever way you are, I'm not here to tell you how to be connected to God. That's not what this is about. I let people find God how they want to find God. That's not my lane. My lane is this though. If you're connected to God, you're connected to the answer. Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, all points to the mind of God having all the answers. And if the mind of God is a part of you, then you have all the answers. Now, how you use that doesn't mean you can sit there and just chill and think everything's coming. No, you got to be moving towards stuff. You got to be willing to step out beyond your comfort zone. You got to be willing to work some things. So that's what that's about. Before I get off into this conversation that we're going to have today, I want to uh, remind you that uh, because this is book number 25, I want to remind you. Uh, that we are having a sponsorship program associated with the book, meaning that you can literally sponsor a space in the book. And it, with that sponsorship, you can literally pay homage to somebody that has had an impact in your life, whether it's your mentor, whether it's a college professor, whether it's a, a grade school teacher, whether it's your mom, your dad, your grandparents. Maybe it's something you want to celebrate about something you accomplished. You've been going after that certain degree or you've been talking about starting that business or whatever it is and you want to do it. You can sponsor it in this book. The beautiful thing about it is there's no minimum. Uh, I'm not telling people what to do. I want you to be a part of it and I want you in the book. So you can sit up and sponsor 50, 50 cents and your name's going to be in the book and you're going to be able to write out something. I'm going to let you decide what you think 
it, it's worth to you to do it. Now, someone who sponsors $25 or more will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. Someone who sponsors $100 or more will get a dedicated page, meaning that's your page. You can write what you want to write on it. Yes, it can be done for more than one person. You can do it as many times as you want for as many people as you want. You can create it in a, num a number of different ways. I'm not putting any limitations on it. You can make one lump sum payment and do everything on one page. You can make one lump sum page and just say, I want to break it down into four people. However you want to do it, I'm not putting, I, I want you to really feel free to celebrate people. I think that's something we don't get to do a lot. We don't get to celebrate things. We don't get to talk about the people. Or when we do, we're just talking, to, talking about them to the next person and the next person. I want to memorialize the people that made a difference. Like, cause I'm going to memorialize some people who had a massive impact, starting with my journalism teacher who started my writing career and, and, and was directly associated with my first book. My first article was in high school was the invisible father reversing the curse of a fatherless generation, um, which became my first book, but it started because my, journalism teacher who happened to be married to one of my football coaches knew that I didn't know my biological father, that I was being reared by my great grandparents and her and her husband, coach Leonard played a major role in being a part of my life as a high school student, because they knew there was this big age gap between me and my great grandparents who were my adopted parents. And it was a lot of things that I was missing. So they jumped in, they would come pick me up and spend time with me on the weekend. And challenge me in sports and in academics to be the best I could be. And there were a lot of others, Ms. Dewberry, my English teacher, who told me that the word can't would never apply to me and challenged me in the classroom every day. And I can go on. So I'm going to do that. But I'm challenging you. There are other people in my great grandmother herself who challenged me to learn how to read at three years old. Uh, you know, instead of spending time doing stuff that kids in the early 70s, well, three years old, I think it was 1970, I was born in 67. So all these things, all these people played a role in my life. And I've had a chance to memorialize them and acknowledge them throughout my books, but I'm going to do it again here. Uh, and I'm going to enjoy it, but I'm inviting everybody else to do it too. Uh, you can do, like I say, as little as 50 cents, as much as you want to. But if you do $100, you get your own space. If you do $250, uh, at first, I had it at 500. I figured, hey, wait, that's too much. You do $250, you not only get your own page, but you get to submit a picture of the person that you memorialize and are celebrating. Uh, and again, this is at your discretion, however you want to do it, however much you want to do it. If you want to participate, I'm, in, I'm inviting everybody to. If you don't, much love to you anyway. But that's that. Now, uh, for those who want to click the link in the description box and go to the page and read more about it, feel free to do so. For those of you who just want to click a link and go straight to it, I'm adding that link right now to the chat or comment field or wherever it is you're watching this because I'm streaming to multiple channels. But now let's talk about this installment of the Wealth, the Black Wealth series. And this one, uh, I'm going to try to be as succinct as I can, but it, 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 it's sort of complex in nature and i want people to really understand it because again remember we're building an understanding because it is in the understanding that uh strategies are developed it's in the understanding of a problem enigma or situation that you are able to construct meaningful 
uh, responses. And so I want you to really understand some things because, see, we're really gaslighting into believing that, hey, man, this is how you get wealthy. If you don't, you ain't got it. It's on you. Well, that's one dynamic. And if you don't understand the other dynamics, there's a problem. So we want to talk about here how family wealth impacts the learning of a child. Now, in order to understand that, we're going to talk about three levels of currency. Normally, when I talk about currency, I use it as one component of the wealth factor in economics, meaning that even in an economic discussion, currency in and of itself is only one form of the representation of money. And normally, we normally use currency as the liquid form of wealth, meaning the one that's easily uh, transacted. So in, in some cases, money or your debit card with dollars on it, that's the liquid form in this currency. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take currency to simplify the discussion. And I'm going to make currency be three different forms of wealth influence within the family that has an impact on a child's ability to learn. And since a child's ability to learn is going to have a direct impact on their ability to show up economically in this world and have an impact and to establish for themselves a level of success that allows them to move about life in a way that's beneficial not only to them, but to their family, their progeny, offspring, and so forth. But it's immensely important to understand the first level of currency is just that money spent. Okay, so some of the things that you learned when you have a disproportionate uh, or disparaging gap in currency is what is available. And I'm going to do the very abbreviated. You want the whole thing, you're going to have to get the book. And I'm going to outline it with in, in great detail. But I just want to kind of make points here. Okay, so for instance, an affluent family is going to be able to afford, number one, to live in a community where their property taxes dictate that the schools that their children go to are going to be well-funded and in well-funded teachers are going to be paid higher so you're going to be able to get the star the brighter stars that are coming out of college and uh, wanting to enter into the teaching profession you're also going to have the latest in technology and other instruments that are necessary that's the first level of the financial curve. The second level is the technology that is now necessary for a student to just complete the most basic of assignments. You got to be able, a lot of schools, districts will uh, pass out, uh, will pass out, uh, you know, laptops and 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 even provide uh, uh, program sponsored internet for the home. But in many instances, they don't. Uh, it's becoming a, 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 a bit more widespread that you can get uh, some form of Internet. It may not be the, the highest performing Internet, but at least the kid can have access because so much, what's a, so much of what they're doing now is online. But obviously, the parent with the financial uh, well-being or the financial capacity will be able to provide a lot more for their child than the parent who isn't. Also, the size of the house, the size of the family, all of these things are going to play a major role. And when you've got to split limited resources between multiple children, now you're sitting in a situation where everybody's suffering, everybody's sacrificing something. But those who you're going to those who you're going to ultimately be competing against in the market for income are having a head start. 
That's what generational wealth is all about. It's about the head start. Are you starting at ground zero like mommy, like daddy, like grandma, like grandpa? Or, or yes, another point that I'm going to get to a little further on, uh, and I'll share that right now, is the number of the people in the house can be distracted. Exactly. There are studies that actually show that sharing a room can can negatively impact your ability to learn, can impact your uh, cognitive development and your cognitive well-being. That being in a room, whether it's distraction, whether it's stress and all of the other things can have a negative impact on your ability to learn, but also in your overall cognitive de development. And so that's a part of wealth as well. The ability to have the space necessary to allow your children to actually fully develop. We've lived in situations where we've shared spaces so much that it's normal that we've normalized this and not really realizing that it's a part of an adverse childhood experience. It's going to have a long-term uh, cognitive effect, a long-term uh, effect, and can in some ways even be traumatizing depending on the level of stress that is created by sharing a small space with a lot of people. Uh, thanks for bringing that up, Community Solutions Pro. Uh, that's very important that that be brought out. I was going to bring it up later, but since, since it was stated, I want to acknowledge it. Uh, it's awesome to have people who are aware uh, that uh, of what's going on. But yeah, that's a major issue. And so you, you've got, uh, number one, because I can't afford a house in a neighborhood in which the tax dollars are going to produce a better uh, learning environment at the institution, uh, that's a problem. Because I can't afford a house with enough space to give each child their room to have their own peace uh, and their own room to, to create their, think about it. In a room, with, like I grew up with my grandparents, so I didn't have to share any space. So that room was a reflection of my growth in me. And as I discovered everything on the wall changed, it was my way of creating and having and expressing myself. I didn't have to compete with anybody, argue with anybody, or go back and forth for tit for tat, what was gonna be on the wall. As long as it passed <laughs> the inspection of Pops, it was all good. It pops with something else, but um, that that was the case. So it's so many different things and variables outside of just having money. It's what the money does. It's the environments that uh, the, the, the first currency is what is there in the way of money and what that money provides. And there's a lot more than that, but we're not going to get into it all. The second kind of currency is what's known as uh, family currency or human currency. And human currency is the specific amount of energy, time, and effort that a parent is able to invest in their child's learning. See, uh, in, in, in instances where the studies show that with a parent that is financially set, that there is simply more time spent with the child. Okay, so that's going and that's been proven to have a massive impact on the child's learning capacity. Another thing that happens with more affluent families is that they have a better understanding of child development. What that means is they understand that communicating with the child in a more complex manner challenges the child's brain to develop and expand in the way of creativity, in the way of expression, and so much more. What you have in more impoverished homes are situations where the parent is overworked, the parent is pressed, so the parent doesn't have a whole lot of time to spend just on enjoying their child, encouraging their child. So it's like, hey, when I get home, this better be done, that better be done, and it's very in a very limited vocabulary that this is expressed. Well, what happens with that is uh, the child isn't challenged 
to develop a more creative way of expression, a, a better way of communicating, and it limits cognitive development. That, and, and so now we're talking about not just what you can afford, but what you can afford to invest in a child and how that impacts them. And uh, so you got investing in the child and communication, investing in the child. Now it goes all the way back to what the child can uh, get from the parent. I mean, even while the mother is carrying the child, true, mothers who are coming from an impoverished background are more likely to drink during pregnancy. Uh, alcohol fetal syndrome, fetal uh, alcohol fetal syndrome, which is uh, definitely going to have an impact on cognitive development. Um, uh, they're going to probably have uh, poor uh, prenatal health care. That's going to have a uh, issue on the development of the fetus, as well as the child being born into an environment where they're probably not going to be totally, uh, I mean, completely and wholly nourished. Uh, poor nutrition in children is going to have a massive impact on cognitive development. The studies are there. We talk about all of this in the book. Uh, the studies are there that cognitive development is impacted by nutrition. Uh, it's in, impacted by environment. It's impacted by uh, uh, encouragement. A lot of things that, and, and it's not that the parents don't want the best for the children. Most, most parents in poverty don't have a complete understanding of childhood development, uh, how children develop, how children naturally learn. Uh, they're trusting a system to tell them. They're trusting a system. So when someone shows up to a mom and says, your, your child is learning disabled, your child is suffering from uh, oppositional defiant disorder, your child is suffering from ADHD, and, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to uh, enroll them uh, into a special education program, and we're going to prescribe to them uh, a Schedule II drug, which is more than likely going to be some form of a st stimulant like Ritalin, Vyvanse, Concerta, Adderall. We're going to pump that into their systems. It's going to make them more docile. They'll be able to sit down and learn. But what you realize, they've already checked out because you drugged them with a drug that's very akin to cocaine. And because of their hyperactivity, which doesn't necessarily mean a mental disorder, their hyperactivity will normally respond to a stimulant in, in reverse, meaning that hyper children tend to be calm down with stimulants, but it doesn't make them learn any better. It just simply makes it easier for the teacher to do their job because you've got everybody sitting down. Nobody actually understands that a five-year-old sitting still for four and five hours isn't normal. And that you've got to, okay, if you're going to be required to sit like that in school, then we've got to make up for what you need to load. There's a way of discovery that's a part of the uh, mental stimulation and development of the brain that a child needs at an early age. We learned that they actually learn better with movement. They learn better with music. They learn better in noisy environments where they can explore, where they're not clamped down. But we've got to understand it because we don't understand that. And absolutely. Uh, those uh, parenting habits are passed down, and those are things that we have to explore because it has a massive impact on the overall outcome of the child's life. And we are passing down poor outcomes because we don't understand the importance of wealth across the board, not just in money, but in time and in energy spent in an understanding of how your child learns and an understanding of the importance of knowing the uniqueness of each child. Every child isn't the same. You can't keep using universal standards and universal methods thinking you're going to get the optimal outcome. So what's happened is children have been exposed to universal standards. And so the ones who thrive in those standards are considered excellent and gifted. And those who don't are considered 
learning disabled when the truth of the matter is they're all gifted they learn different and if you expose the child to the right stimuli in the right situation in the right environment you get the best of the child and they perform not everybody is meant to use a hammer not everybody is meant to use a pen not everybody's going to be great on a keyboard stop thinking because this is the way we've done we have one of the worst educational system systems in uh the world and the best of it is being withheld for the more affluent, but it still sucks. And then guess what the children who don't have resources are left with? Crap. And then they're blamed for their performances. And it's our responsibilities to understand how all of this stuff connects. Then after you have human currency, you have what's known as social currency. Social currency is the entire environment and how that environment feeds or impedes the path of the child. A good social environment is that people who are wealthy are going to have friends who are wealthy. People who are wealthy are going to have places and things that can plug. They can send that kid to summer camp where the kid is going to learn crafts and hobbies and new things that actually might become something they end up doing and loving and, and thriving in. They're going to be able to send them around other kids who are also thriving. Remember that you are going to be a basic. Basically, you're going to become an average of the five people you spend the most time around. Well, if all your environment has for you is other kids who are in a poor situation and doing the best they can with it, parents are struggling, everything is going on, the chances of you coming out there are not that high. Are there always exceptions to the rule? Absolutely. And the problem is that when we see those exceptions, we celebrate them without understanding the dynamic through which they achieved their high level of success. And we tend to still minimalize or marginalize the others who are left behind without wondering and asking those questions. Okay, if this person made it, why these didn't make it? And stop using the one who made it, the talented 10th. Stop using them as a way to shame those who still are trying to figure it out. Because the truth of the matter is we were supposed to be working together from the first. The talented 10th was supposed to be the answer. The talented 10th was supposed to be the coach. The talented 10th was supposed, was supposed to be the ones who sit up and say, hey, look, let me show you how I did it. But see, now the talented tit gets rewarded for looking down on the 90. The talented tit is more in line and in tune to want to fit in with the other side. Look what I got. Look what I can do. But you're still a part of this group. They may deal with you differently and accept you to a certain extent, but you still are who you are. And that's black. Okay. So we're talking about financial currency, we're talking about family uh, uh, human currency, and we're talking about social currency. And all of these things play a role because without financial resources, all of these things negatively impact learning. All of these things will also have massive health implications. That's a thing called adverse childhood experiences, known as ACEs. Uh, it, it, I discovered it as a part of my uh, research into epigenetics and how it plays a role in multi-generational trauma and uh, in the uh, health decline of many Blacks. Uh, and so we, we discover one element and facet of that is adverse childhood ex experiences. And we learned that for every adverse childhood experience, you get a point. So some of the adverse childhood experiences that are experienced, especially in poor environments, but across the board, are uh, parents uh, separating, uh, parents uh, suffering from some sort of chemical 
uh, dependency, alcoholism, drug addiction, parents being incarcerated, violence in the home, uh, child molestation, and so many other. Each one of those a point where you get to three and four adverse childhood experiences. Now you're talking about poor outcomes and health way down the line. It's not just a momentary thing. It's a thing that follows you for your life. For instance, a child with four adverse childhood uh, experience point, four ACEs, is 12 times more likely to attempt suicide. And what we have right now, which is blowing my mind, is that in the age group of 5 to 11, Blacks lead in the area of suicide. For the first time ever, Blacks are at the top of a statistical category when it comes to suicide. And it's ages 5 to 11. Number one, our children are exposed to way too much digital stimuli without parental guidance. We are letting devices rear our children and we cannot control everything they see. Plus, they're exposed to an idea that things just happen. Then they are given, then they are exposed to people who don't have their best interests at heart. Now, what you have to understand is with these ACEs, 12 times more likely to commit suicide, four times more likely to develop ischemic heart failure, number one killer in the world of natural causes. Uh, they experience diabetes and other forms of illnesses that are associated with stress. Do you realize that chronic stress is a major killer and it has a direct implication in so many diseases that we have, including cancer? See, when I studied epigenetics, I actually was invited uh, after writing a couple of papers, I was invited to an international uh, conference on epigenetics and cancer to speak because in looking for how epigenetics impacted trauma, I found out that gene regulation that's associated with uh, uh, epigenetics, the upregulation and downregulation of genes or the turning on of a gene and off of a gene or the communication of a gene. In other words, Everybody has cancer genes. Everybody has genes that uh, makes them susceptible to certain diseases. Let's talk about cancer. Those genes are there. But for can for different forms of cancer to be actually uh, uh, developed, you have to have so many cancer genes turned on simultaneously. Well, stress is one of the most powerful uh, igniters of turning those genes on. See, we used to think it was... Uh, Genetic in the sense of, okay, my mom was predisposed to have this, so I'm probably going to have It was the environment that was being passed down, not necessarily the gene. Now, there are genetic tags that can be passed down uh, through which you can have certain genetic experiences that were trauma, but most of it is environment. Where are you at? What are you living in? What are you going through? We're practicing habits that are harming us. We're creating situations that are harming us, and that's the thing that we've got to be aware of. But I'm saying all of this to say that we are in a situation where our children are suffering because they don't have financial currency, human currency, and uh, social currency. They don't have the same exposure to the things that will put them in the best possible situation as those who are on the other side of the equation. It's more to it than just money. That's why a lot of times you'll see people saying, well, this organization is doing, you know, uh, committing to X million of dollars in the community. It's not simply how much money is committed to it. It's the understanding of the entire dynamic. The dynamic has to be changed. There has to be a strategy that teaches parents the importance of engaging their children. 
It must be strategies that teaches the importance of exposing children to things that will positively impact their learning this experience and their development. Cognitive development is so important. It's not the things you learn more than it is the things you have the capacity to discover. See, we are so busy trying to teach kids things that we squeeze their ability to discover. We close out their imagination and we make our reality their reality. And before long, you're dealing with something known as uh, help, helpless, uh, I mean, learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is this thing where I watch somebody else try something for so long and fail at it that I just realize it's impossible. Because they never were able to do it. How am I going to do it? It's called learned hopelessness. Uh, in, in that sense, vicarious learned hopelessness, watching somebody else fail. And then there's learned hopelessness where you try and try and try and you don't uh, get the result you want. You give up. The thing is, you've got to be exposed to people who've done it already. You've got to learn how to expose children to an idea that what they're seeking is possible. You've got to support them. You've got to get out of the idea of killing visions before they're ever birthed. You've got to get out of the idea of trying to chastise a kid because they don't fit in a box. Build them their own box or just tear the box up all together because not everybody is going to learn the same. Not everybody's going to have the same personality. Not everybody's going to have the same approach. When you try to squeeze everybody into, if you don't act like this, something's wrong with you. If you don't move like this, something's wrong with you. What we should be conditioning our children to do is develop a sense of value. Not that old corny conversation about I know my worth conversation. No, I'm talking about a sense of true value. What do I bring to the table in this world? What do I have to offer this world? Because if I understand what I have to offer this world, I can hone that. I can refine that. I could develop that. I could beat on my craft until I get to a point that I literally bring an enormous amount of value to the table. And if I bring value to the table, then that value is representative of a universal currency. Let's call it gold. Now, he who has the gold makes the rules. Now, when you have the gold, you don't have to fit into their boxes. When you have the gold, you don't have to sit up and, and oh, you, how do you think we got to the point where young black men are, uh, how do you feel we got to the point where young black men are now in courtrooms with braids and locks? How do you feel we got into a situation where Someone like myself can show up and speak in a T-shirt and a cap or a hoodie and not be looked at as less than. It's value. He who has the gold makes If I have something you want, your proclivity to judge me because I don't look like you or act like you goes out the window because I have something you don't have. And you need it. So while there's a part of you that's saying, man, he's here looking like that, or he's got a beard. Remember, having a beard used to be out of the question. Then all of a sudden, it stopped being, because we start to learn that that has very little to do with what's on the inside. It has very little to do with what I'm capable of doing. Got a lot of people that are clean shaven, wearing nice suits that are crap, that suck, that are doing unbelievable things ultimately start to look at the person, start to give a person the opportunity. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. But what you have is when you teach your kid that when you understand your value, they don't have to now be 
squeezed into a box of trying to be like something, someone else, look like someone else, talk like someone else. Be very, very proud of your development. Develop the ability to communicate because we, the more you're able to communicate, the more walls and barriers come down. One of the most frustrating things that I've seen amongst our youth is the inability to communicate. I know what they're saying, but there are a bunch of people that if they're not a part of the culture, won't understand where you're coming from, won't understand what you're saying. And a lot of times, because we don't understand that, we shame our kids into being able to communicate outside of the cultural norms. Develop the ability to communicate because a lot of the things you're going to need in life won't necessarily come from within the confines of your culture. You've got to learn how to be diverse. You've got to learn how to move. Now, you never sell out who you are, but you understand is there are things over there I need. I got to know how to go over there and get it. And the thing is, if you take enough value with you, you don't have to change when you get there. This is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I need you to do for me. And fair exchange, you take it, you go do what you want to do with it. You got it now. But we have a responsibility to our youth. Now, there's a question here that I'm going to uh, try to answer real quickly. Uh, it says, matter of fact, let me just put it up here. How do we show how do we show kids how to tap into their personal creativity? A lot of times, depending on what stage they're in, if these kids are under the age of seven, leave them alone. When they say something that's totally off the wall, encourage them. Because I'm pretty sure. When Orville and Wilbur Wright told their mom they were going to create a machine to fly in the air, they were probably going, these kids are absolutely ridiculous. I'm sure uh, when the brother who created cellular phones was talking about, man, I'm going to create a phone where you don't even need a wire plugged into the wall. If you don't get out of here. But the whole thing is you got to be able to think out of that side of the box. So when these kids come to you, the imagination is their power. The imagination is a reflection of their creativity. It's saying that there are other ways of doing things in the way you know. It's You got to learn how to let them be creative. Now, if you're starting to talk about older kids who have been uh, conditioned to shrink the vision, you got to start lifting the weights off of the things that cause them to shrink. You got to start encouraging them to get outside the box. You got to give them examples of people who thought outside of the box. You got to show them what happens when they get outside of the box. You got to make it okay to fail. Because, see, that's something else we did is we made failure the most horrible thing in the world when absolutely everybody fails. Nobody gets through life and says, I never failed. Matter of fact, if you study all of the people who have been exceptional, they failed a lot. Why? Because they were going out and doing things they'd never done before. They were going out in places that not, had not been explored before. They were doing things for the first time. And when you do things for the first time, you're going to suck at it. But that's where it starts. You got to encourage. Oh, that's okay, baby. Go try again. Hell, they've already got practice on it. They did it a lot when they were trying to walk. Fail, failed, 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 failed. But guess what? You didn't have to tell them to get up and try again. It was already in them. They had a resilience and a perseverance in them that said, oh, I failed once, not ever trying that again. Nope, got right back up, fell again. They kept falling until guess what? One day they didn't fall anymore. That's life. And if you can let them have that at that early age and then start to encourage it in other areas, you will be surprised at what you're able to get out of your child. I tell people all, tell people all the time, I'm not where I'm at because I didn't fail. I'm where I'm at because I didn't care that I failed. I'm going after it. I want to do it. 
But very few, Rick, very few people have been successful in that. You know how many people fail doing that? That's exactly why I'm going after it. Because I don't want to be in the box with all the people who are afraid to fail so they just stay safe. There's so much to this. And it's our responsibilities to teach our children to look outside of the box. Look, we have a real dilemma. The wealth gap is widening, uh, which is another reason why I decided to write book number 25, despite having some great people who came before me who touched on this issue. I think that it has to be touched on a more comprehensive and panoramic uh, perspective. Uh, we need to look at it from our views. We need to look at it from the historical perspective. We need to understand that we are not where we're at because we were lazy. We came out the box building. They came out tearing it down. We came out the box with hope. They destroyed hope with the black codes. They made owning businesses illegal for blacks in the South. They uh, made being unemployed illegal, a felony in the South. I touched on all of this in previous installments on this. So when you start to talk about this, you got to look at it from a whole, uh, an entire perspective. And that's what this book is about. Let's, let's take a trip through history and find out how easy it really was for blacks. Even when we did it, when we created Tulsa, when we created Rosewood, when we created Slocum, when we created Wilmington, when we created all of these enclaves where blacks were thriving at, they found a way to tear it down. That's the physical side of it, tearing it down. But what about redlining? What about uh, convict leasing? What about the black codes? What about miseducation? What about benign neglect? What about urban renewal? What about mass, all of the, the war on drugs? All of these things were ways that have directly or indirectly impacted our ability to build wealth. Now, don't get me wrong. We have some thinking, some, some, some flaws in our thinking. Uh, we have a consumeristic mindset. We, we, we play around in consumerism way too much with, with very few resources. We want to show what we have when we really don't have it because we feel we'll be accepted and we'll be liked and uh, we'll fit in uh, instead of building. Building and not being concerned with what others are doing and thinking, but building regardless of. And so we've got all these things in place and we need to be aware of it. Uh, I'm gonna keep these uh, segments coming, uh, just different parts of the book. Uh, that I think that are important to understand. If we're going to talk about wealth, we got to understand the entire dynamic. Yeah, we could, because this is the bottom line. How they build wealth is not how we build wealth. Now, some of the dynamics are always in place. Uh, when you come to pure economics and finance, uh, one of the things you want to invest in long term is compound growth. You got to find some mechanism that produces compound growth annually. That's going to handle your long term. And the earlier you get started on that, the better. That's regardless of no matter who you are. But some of the other mechanisms like real estate, everything everybody talks about owning your own home. It's not the same. I'll show you, I've been uh, doing studies over the last few years. And what I can tell you is there is an ongoing practice where appraisers are going in. And I'm pretty sure that there is a direct connectivity to lenders as well. But appraisers are going in. And if there's evidence that the home is uh, black owned, it's not receiving the same resale value appraiser 
appraisal as uh, comparative properties. When you say comparative properties or comparative analysis in real estate, what you're talking about is you take a home and within a certain miles, uh, a certain mile radius of that home, you're looking at comparable homes, homes with the same square footage, homes with similar erections, meaning either downstairs, uh, one story, two story, uh, you know, type of bathrooms, all these different things. You look for comparable properties. Well, when you take comparable properties, uh, the same uh, comps, same square footage, same erection, same school district, all these here, homes that are white owned are being valued at a significantly higher rate than blacks. And we've even seen the situations where blacks had it initially appraised with their pictures and everything showing, okay, this is a black family's home. Then they turn around, took all of that out, had white friends or associates come over and pretend to be the homeowners. And the, evalu the evaluation by the appraiser, uh, which was obviously a, di obviously a different appraiser, but it went up. We also seen the reverse, which is another way that impacts uh, uh, impacts value because the appraisal of your home is going to determine, determine uh what's known as the spread in your home after a certain amount of time of paying on your home uh you're going to develop a spread meaning that you're going to actually have equity in the home and the equity is how much of the home you own beyond what you owe on it so like if you were to sell it for what it was worth you would have money coming to you that's your spread what's financed versus what's uh what the property is worth well the more spread you have in the property, the more value you have and access you have to it. And it opens up a, lot, a whole other line of access to resources when you need them. Uh, blacks don't have that at the same level whites do. So getting to wealth isn't the same path. We have to understand that. Okay. On the flip side of the same property issue, when properties say take the same couples we just had, white and black. Now we're valuing the property for tax purposes the black property gets a higher appraisal than a white property. And I'm not making this up. I'm telling you what my research has shown and what's out there. Those are mechanisms that are in place. That's why when people start arguing we're in a post-racist society, I laugh. They've become very subtle in the way they do it, but redlining still exists. And so we've got to understand, okay, we can sit up and whine and complain about it, or we can understand that we are going to have to uh, do a better job. So I'm going to keep bringing these. Uh, hopefully you get an idea of where this book is going. This book is not simply X's and O's and invest in that, invest in this. That's a place for that. And somebody's got that. This isn't just talking about the importance of black group economics and how black labor has been leveraged. Uh, one of the greatest to ever do it's already done that, Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, this is about saying, okay, Let's look at every element and component that's tied to wealth building. And where are we in this equation? Who influenced where we're at in this equation? So what are avenues we can take right now that will open up the doors for us to do something in this situation? Uh, and that's what this is about. This is okay, from 1865, this is what's been going on. Okay, it's 2021, what are we gonna do about it? Okay, here's where we start. And then bam, we go from there. And so that's what it's about. And like I said, I have made it uh, uh, possible for anyone who wants to, to sponsor space in this book. And when I say sponsor space, I mean just that. For any amount, I've put no minimum on it. 
I haven't had anybody do 50 Cent yet, but if you do 50 Cent, your name will go in the book. You'll get your space and you will get to memorialize, acknowledge, celebrate somebody or celebrate some accomplishment you've done. But it's about celebrating the people who have had an impact in your life in some way or another uh, or just expressing the hope for a future uh, sending a message to the future of the people who actually read the book. It's so many different ways you can use that space and it's no limitation to it. Uh, and like I said, there is no minimal. Now, obviously, as you start to graduate in what you sponsor, there are some benefits. If you if you sponsor twenty five dollars or more, you get a signed copy of the book upon release. If you sponsor one hundred dollars or more, you get a dedicated page that's all yours. If you sponsor two hundred and fifty dollars or more, you're going to get uh, a dedicated page. Plus, you get to submit a, a picture of the person or the thing that you're celebrating. Uh, I invite you to be a part of it again. It, it, there's no minimum. So it's not like, man, I would really like to do it, but man, bring your 50 cent, bring your dollar, bring your five, bring your, t it, it's whatever. And your amount will not be putting there. So this isn't about embarrassing anybody. So bring it and celebrate with me on book number 25. Uh, I think that's monumental in and of itself. And we're going to continue these sessions and I hope that we get something out of it and we start to move forward. On that note, I'm out here. You guys have an unbelievable day.